good to see all of you this morning, literally all of you. It's awesome to have both services together and all of our guests with us this morning and friends. We're excited this morning as we celebrate the resurrection. Jesus is risen. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate that. He is risen. Okay, you guys are all together. We're going to do this a little bit more today. We're going to enjoy this morning. We're going to celebrate. We're worshiping this morning. We're going to study the Word this morning, and we're studying Exodus chapter 24. We're not taking a break through our study of Exodus. If you're a guest with us, we've been studying through Exodus for several, several months, a year and a half, and we have been looking at this text that's just unbelievable about God's mercy and God's grace and God's rescue and God's desire for a relationship with his people. I think it's amazing and providential that no one is in this room by accident. And this text that we're studying this morning is not by accident either. We, we outlined Exodus a year and a half ago. All of the text and we looked through which weekends we would cover. And, and we did not say, okay, what text are we going to cover on Easter we simply outlined Exodus, and this particular text is the text that God would have for us this morning. And it's an amazing text about God's desire for relationship and his provision of a relationship and the means by which he provided us with a relationship to himself. For those of you that have not been here, let me catch you up to speed in, in terms of where we've been in this book. The first 18 chapters are all about God's rescue. They're all about his miraculous provision, his terrifying fury and power coming to the aid of his people to provide them with rescue. They, he heard their cries and he came to their rescue. And then the, the last few weeks we've been studying chapters 19 to chapter 24, which is where we land today. And in those chapters we see that he seals the relationship, that he confirms the relationship, that he lays out the terms of the relationship and then he seals that relationship. And then where we're going in chapter 25 all the way to chapter 40 is because of his covenant relationship with his people, God comes to dwell in their midst. And we'll be spending time looking at the tabernacle and how God required this of them to build this so that he could and would come and dwell in their midst. This morning we're looking specifically at chapter 24, and as we look back just a few weeks, chapter 19 is where he lays out his rescuing grace. You would not be standing at Sinai were I, were I not to hear your cry, had I not come to your aid, had I not come down and rescued you and scooped you up and carried you, it says in 19, 4-5, like, like on an eagle's wings, I have carried you, you did nothing, I carried you to this place. And then we saw in chapter 20 the ten words, the ten commandments, in chapter 21 and chapter 23 the ordinances, and these are, these are God's terms of how he expects, if, if I've rescued you out from bondage and slavery to Pharaoh, and I've rescued you for relationship, then this is how you're going to live before me in relationship. And then we come to today, chapter 24, and God seals the relationship. We're going to see three things this morning in this text. We're not going to cover all of the verses. We're going to cover primarily verses 1 to 11. But in these verses, we're going to see first God's invitation to his people. It's going to be said over and over again to come up, come up to me, come up. But we're going to see that there are still limits to the relationship. That only one can come in 
And that's the mediator, Moses. And then, after the invitation, we're going to see the means. The means by which God provides. The means by which they can come up and come in to relationship with Him. And the means is the shed blood of a sacrifice. The shed blood of a covenant. And then, the most amazing thing in this text is the result. What happens as a result? What do they get as a result of God's invitation to come up and to come in and God's provision of the shed blood of a sacrifice? What do they get? They get His presence. And that's why the rest of the book of Exodus, 25 to 40, is all about God's presence dwelling in their midst. And so let's look this morning first at the invitation that God offers and issues. In verse 1, Of chapter 24 and verse 2, then he said, God said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. So we see that there is an invitation here. Immediately, God is inviting the people. And who do we have here? We have Moses, the great high priest, and Aaron and his two sons, which represent the priesthood of Israel. And then we have the 70 of the elders. And 70, this is amazing, the book of Exodus, chapter 1, verse 5, it started with 70 people. And now they have 70 elders representing all of the people, thousands upon thousands, millions of, of Israelites. They have 70 elders, and the, word, and the number 70 represents wholeness. And, and so these elders represent all of the people. What do we have here? The leaders of Israel representing all the people of Israel being invited up, being invited further up into the presence. And what's going on here? What is God doing? He's inviting Israel into relationship with himself. He's inviting them into relationship with the one true God of the universe. And he's, in this text, formalizing that relationship. And it's going to happen through the form of a, of a covenant. He told them, I'm rescuing you to make you my holy people, a holy nation, a, a nation of priests. And now he's formalizing that relationship. But we cannot miss what is said in these first two verses. They're invited up but only so far. They can come closer, but still there are limits. There are barriers between them and God, the people of God. This is a significant development and a significant advancement. If you, if you hear the text again, that they're invited up, and then it says, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, But the others shall not come near. The people shall not come up with him. Three times in the text it said, it says once come up, and then three times in the text it says, but they cannot come any closer. Three times in the text, but only come so far. Three times in the text, you cannot come all the way in. The invitation to Moses is to approach. That's what it means to come near. Moses alone may approach the throne. Moses alone may come into the Holy of Holies. Moses alone may come in. But Israel, you can come up, but you can only come so far. Now, how is this different? Why is this significant? When we read in in Exodus chapter 19, the people were invited to Mount Sinai and Moses was told multiple times, come up 
and go down. And what was he told to go down to? Go down to the people and set limits. Lest they come over, lest they step on the mountain, the holy mountain where the presence of God is, lest they step on the mountain and die. So they could only come so far. There were limits multiple times, it says in Exodus 19. There are limits to how far the people can come in. There, are, there is a barrier to how close they can come. It's an, it's an advancement in, from 19. It's also an advancement from chapter 20, verse 18 to 20. Because after they heard the voice of God thundering for, forth the, the Ten Commandments, it says in chapter 20, verse 18, and then in 21, it says the people were afraid, they trembled, and they stood far off. In other words, they didn't want to come closer. The fury and the fire of God had descended on the mountain and they heard his ordinances, they heard his word, they heard the commandments and they were terrified of this infinitely holy God. And they didn't want to come any closer. And now he's saying to the elders, the representatives of all of Israel, come, come closer, come up. Come to me. He's inviting them up the mountain. They are advancing further up the mountain, but there are still limits. There's still a barrier between them and God. Every time it talks about set limits in 19 and in 20, it talks about them standing far off. And then in this text, that they can come up, but they must worship from afar. It's an indicator, it's a, it's a signpost of the sinfulness of Israel, the sinfulness of man, and the holiness of God, and that there is a vast gulf between the two. That there is a massive gulf between the two, that, that they cannot come up and come all the way in. Only one can come up and come all the way in, and that's the mediator Moses. They cannot enter in fully, not yet. Only Moses can enter in. Only Moses can come up and come in. He can go further up and further in to the presence of God. And he's acted as mediator all along throughout the book of Exodus. And that's seen here even again. When it says come near, he's invited to approach. We see that in the invitation in verse 1 to 2. And then we see that in the actions in verse 12 to 18. What happens in verses 12 to 18 of, of chapter 24? Moses goes up into the cloud, into the terror, into the fury, into the fire, into the holy presence of God, the holy of holies. Moses is able to go into the presence of God and he's not consumed. And what does he do there? He dwells in the presence of God for 40 days and 40 nights and he receives the very words of God, the very word of God, the ten words of God. He communes with God, and he's not consumed. The mediator can stand in the presence of the fire and the fury, and he's not consumed. But the people cannot, lest they die. They are invited closer. We have to see that. They are invited up. They are invited closer. It's clearly in the text. But they're not invited all the way in. They don't yet have that kind of access. When we fast forward to the New Testament, for us, what we see here 
And what we learn is that we too are invited into relationship with God. We too are invited in, but unlike Israel, who was invited up in Jesus, we are invited all the way in. But more than that, God has come all the way down. And this is a radical distinction among all world religions. Christianity stands apart in this distinct way. All world religions and all self-effort says, I have to clean myself up. I have to earn. I have to climb. I have to do. I have to climb a ladder up to the God, up to the gods. I have to do and clean myself up. And only Christianity says, no, God has come down. And he's come down in the person and the work of Jesus He's come down to us, to sinful man. He has bridged the gap. When we look in the New Testament, John chapter 1, verse 14, that Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He came down, and what is the word dwelt? It means tabernacled. He lived and breathed in flesh and blood among us. John 10, verse 30. John 17, he says, I and the Father are one. John 14, 9. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Hebrews 1, verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus has come down. God has come down in Jesus. We do not have to climb up. This is extraordinary grace. This is the good news of the gospel. That God has come to us. He has bridged the gap. Another important observation. Unlike Israel, in Jesus, we no longer have to stand far off. This is beautiful. We don't have to worship from afar. We don't have to worship God from afar. Instead, we are invited in, into the very presence of the holy God of the universe. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 to 30, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Heavy laden with what? With your own efforts at cleaning your life up. With your own efforts at trying to please the gods or God himself, whatever it is, you no longer have to clean yourself up. Come to me. I'm the means of your cleansing. Come to me. And what does he say? I will give you rest and peace. We no longer have to stand far off. We're invited in. In, in coming to Jesus, what do we receive? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13 to 14. In Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Peace with, peace with who? Peace with God. He himself, Jesus is our peace. Peace with God and peace between one another. That he's the means of vertical reconciliation with God. And he's the means of vertical, horizontal reconciliation with one another. He is our peace. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14. He is, has torn down the dividing wall of hostility. Wall, dividing wall of hostility. The dividing wall of hostility between us and God and between us and one another. Jesus is the one that reconciles us to 
God, we no longer have to stand far off. We are invited all the way in, in Jesus, which means there are no more limits. In Jesus, we have full access to God and can go beyond the limits, beyond the barriers that are, that are there, that, 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 that there's a, a reconciliation that this sinfulness that we have and the holiness of God that somehow we can enter into his presence we have access to God how is it that we have access to God the scriptures tell us it's through Jesus Paul says in Romans chapter 5 verse 1 and 2 since we have been justified by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ there's the peace verse 2 through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now through Christ we have access to God. We are no longer standing far off. There are no more limits. Those who are in Christ Jesus have full access to God. Which means, Ephesians 2.18, we can walk into the, the, the fire, into the fury, into the holy of holies, the presence of the holy God, with confidence. We can approach the throne of grace with boldness. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16. We can draw near to God without fear, without reservation. And how? Jesus. Our one and only mediator. Now, how do they gain that access? Even though limited, and how can we? We see the invitation, what's the means by which they may enter into the presence of God? What's the means by which sinful man can be reconciled to a holy God? We've given the generality, we've given the, the, the Sunday school answer, Jesus. The answer to everything is Jesus. We've given that answer, but what's the specifics? What's the specifics in this text in Exodus 24 and the specifics in the New Testament for us? How is it that... that Israel can enter in, come closer in, and have a relationship such that the, the God of the universe for, for chapter 25 to 40 is going to dwell in their midst. And we see the answer in verses 3 to 8. It's through the shed blood of a sacrifice. It's through the shed blood of a covenant. That's the means. Let's see it in, in verses Verses 3 to 8. Before we get to 3 to 8, we need to understand that, that the initiating, that, that we see it in the invitation, it, it, it's all by God's grace. They, they wouldn't be standing on Mount Sinai were it not for His grace. Had He not heard their cries, had He not come down to scoop them up and to, to carry them away, had He not come to their rescue, had He not done any of this, they would not have any opportunity for relationship. So everything begins with God. It's by His invitation, even in the text. His grace is dripping from every word of the book of Exodus. So, so that's, that precedes everything, but now we see even more specifically the means in verses 3 to 8. In verses 3 to 8, what we see are God's actions that he takes through the mediator to enable them to have a right relationship, to seal their relationship. And what's interesting is if you study verses 3 to 8, there's a pattern here. Moses does something, he does three things, and it's repeated twice. 
He does three things and it's repeated twice. That, that's intended to capture our attention. That's intended to, to help us to, to not just gloss over, to not just skip over that. There's significant meaning in what Moses does. There, there's major significance here and it's repeated twice to capture our attention. What are the three things that he does? The first thing that he does is he proclaims the authority of God. He proclaims the very word of God. We, we see it in, verse 20, in, in chapter 24, verse 3, the first part. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. The, the words are the Ten Commandments. The rules are the ordinances, chapter 21 to 30. He came and he proclaimed. And when we talk about the words, we're, we're, we're talking about the very authority of God. His word overflows from his nature and his character, so, so it carries his authority. So what Moses is proclaiming is the very word of God, the very authority of God. He proclaimed the authority of God. And then he does that again in verse 7. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. What's the book of the covenant? It's the ten words and the ordinances. It's all of it together. So twice we hear Moses proclaims the authority of God, the word of God, the commands of God, the ordinances of God. And what do the people do? Twice in the text, it says the people submit. They yield their wills to the authority of God. It says in, in, in verse 3, the, the latter half of verse 3, And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. Can you imagine... We have the representatives here of Israel, and they hear this, just like all of us, when I said he, he is risen, when Joe said he is risen, and all of us declared in one voice, he is risen indeed. If all of us did that, that, that unifying, loud voice, all of the elders of Israel did that. They all declared, we will do what he has said. We will submit our wills. We will yield ourselves to his authority. He is God and we are not. We will bow. We will yield. We will do it. And then it's repeated again in verse 7b. And in 7b, it adds extra emphasis. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. It's a double emphasis. The word, the authority of God is proclaimed. The people of God acknowledge that authority and they submit. They yield their wills. And then what does he do? What happens? The third thing that happens, and it happens twice in the text, blood is shed on an altar and on the people. In verses 4 to 6, it says, And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars, the pillars representing the people, the altar representing the, the very presence of God, the, the nature and character of God. So you have God and the people represented in what he builds here. According to the twelve tribes of Israel, and he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in, in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. He sprinkled half the blood on what represented the presence of God, the person of God, the nature of God. And then verse 8, it's said again. And Moses took the blood, but he doesn't throw it on the altar. He throws it on the people, likely the pillars, representing all of the people. He threw the blood on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant... 
that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. What's going on here? What's Moses doing? He's built an altar. He's built these pillars. There's this there's a sacrifice, sacrifice made, and blood is shed, and, and the blood is shed on the altar, and the blood is shed on the people. What's going on here? Moses is enacting a covenant. We don't receive the instructions here. We don't see where, how did Moses know what to do. We don't receive that. What we get is a description of what Moses does. Moses is enacting a covenant. The first time or the last time that we saw this was in Genesis chapter 15. In Genesis chapter 15, Abraham is asking a question. God, you said that you would bless me and through me would come nations and you'd bless the nations through the nation that develops through me, that, that, that you'd provide me a son and, and that you would do this miraculous work. How do I know that I can trust you? And God took him out and showed him the stars. Can you count those? Well, of course you can't count those. That's how many will come from you. He points them to the sand on the shore and says, can you count the sands? No, your, 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 your heritage will exceed the, the sands on the, on the shore. But how do I know? And what does God answer with? He answers with a covenant, a blood covenant. Particularly, what Abraham does is he goes and he takes a number of different animals and he slaughters them and he cuts them in half according to covenantal processes and he puts them on both sides and and their blood would drain out into a small trough and typically in a covenant process both parties would walk through that blood and they would get it on the hem of their garment and on their feet and and yes it's gross but what they're saying is you can do to me what we've done to these animals if I'm unfaithful you can slaughter me if I'm unfaithful. Both parties would walk through the blood and both parties were saying, what we just did to those animals, you can do to me if I'm unfaithful. But in, in Genesis chapter 15, only one party walks through the blood. Abraham falls asleep. Abraham has a vision of a smoking fire pot and fire always represents God. What do we have on the mountain at the top of the Sinai right now but this massive fire in cloud of the presence of God? In Genesis 15, the smoking fire pot walks through the blood. The smoking fire pot represents God. Only God walks through the blood. Only one walks through the blood. So what God is saying in that moment is, you may do to me what we've done to these animals if I'm unfaithful. You may slaughter me if I'm unfaithful. But what he's also saying by going through the blood alone is, Abraham, if you are unfaithful, I will also shed my blood. Abraham, if you don't keep the terms of the covenant, I will also shed my blood. I will shed my blood for you. On your behalf. It's substitutionary language. In, in Genesis, in Exodus 24, what we have, by the sprinkling on both parties this time, what we have is the sprinkling on God saying, He will uphold His end of the deal, and if He does not, He can be slaughtered. And this time it's sprinkled on the people, specifically for a reason, because at the end of it being sprinkled on the people, what does Moses say? Behold the blood of the covenant. 
That word behold is look. Look at what's being done here. Look at what you have said. You said you will do what what God has required of you. You said you will uphold your end of the deal. Punishable by death, by the shedding of your own blood. You said that you would do it. Behold, look, remember what you are doing in this moment. What you have confessed in this moment. You're on the line. You're on the hook. If you are unfaithful, you must die. The consequence of disobedience is death. The wages of rebellion is death. And what are they saying? Emphatically, we will do it. We will do it. We will do it. And yet, what do we know about Israel in the, in the Old Testament. What do we know just a few chapters later in chapter 32? The very elders that are saying, we will do it. We will keep it. We will not make another idol. We will not worship another God. We will not break this covenant. We will always be faithful. I will never forsake God. In chapter 32, Aaron and the priest and the elders... Listen to the people who say, make us gods to go before us. And he says, give me your gold. And he fashions a calf out of gold. And he says, after receiving the gold from their hand, he said, they, it says, they said, the elders and Aaron and the priests said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. They are failures. They completely break the covenant. And what do we know throughout the Old Testament over and over again? They fail time and again. They fail to keep His covenant commandments. They fail to give them their whole hearts. They fail to obey. They fail to trust Him at every turn. They say, I will trust you, and then they completely don't. We will not worship foreign gods, and then they do. We will never forsake you. And then in Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 13, my people have done two, committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the well of life, and they've hewn out for themselves cisterns that can hold no water. They are failures at every turn. They're ensnared by sin over and over again by the surrounding nations. They sacrifice even at one point in the Old Testament their own children. Failure after failure after failure. What do they deserve? They deserve death. By the terms of the covenant. By their own lips. By the blood dripping on them. They deserve death. Now, if you're tempted to read about Israel in the Old Testament and to say, those... Knuckleheads. (laughs) Knuckleheads. <laughs> Those silly people. I cannot believe that they would do that. Don't miss what you're staring at as a mirror. You're supposed to read Israel and say, oh my goodness, there I am. I, I say all the time, I will do all the time, I will never all the time, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will all the time, and yet I'm radically inconsistent, I, I fail at every turn, I'm a sinner through and through, just like them. That's what we're supposed to see. 
is the mirror that they present to us. And if they deserve death, then so do we. The wages of sin is death. And yet, what does Israel get in the Old Testament? Over and over and over and over again. But a God great in mercy and grace. Exodus 34, 6-7, the Lord, the Lord, he's announcing himself. The Lord, the Lord, I am, I am a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Abounding in steadfast love. It means heaping up, heaping up love upon love upon love, grace upon grace upon grace, and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. And that literally means for thousands of generations. It's a euphemism for forever. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. I will not call innocent those who are guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. That's an intentional contrast and comparison. We're intended to see that the sins of the fathers extend for the third and fourth generation. But how long does God's grace, how, far, how much farther does God's grace go to thousands upon thousands of generations? His grace far exceeds our sin. His grace far exceeds, outpaces our sinfulness. We're intended to hear his immense, enormous grace. And yes, right in the middle of that it says, and yet I will not clear the guilty. How? How can God be both gracious and just? How can he be both gracious and just? How is it that he can be righteous and just and holy? Is he turning a blind eye on sin? Is he just a divine pushover now? Is he so gracious that he doesn't care about sin? This actually angers many people. What about the sins done to me? Where is the God of justice and wrath? How is it that he can be both infinitely gracious and righteously just in his justice? What does Israel receive over and over again? Hosea chapter 11, verse 1 to 2. When Israel was a child, listen to the fatherly language. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the balls, the bales, and burning burning offerings to idols. My people are bent on turning away from me. And yet, in stunning grace, what do we get but God's response in verse 8 and 9? Oh, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Admon? How can I treat you like Zeboim? Who are Admon and Zeboim? They're the cities that were right next to Sodom and Gomorrah. How can I pour out my wrath in fire and fury upon you? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. There it is again. 
Is God ignoring justice? The covenant requires death. Disobedience leads to death. The wages of sin is death. How is it that God can be so, his heart recoil within him against pouring out his wrath on these people? How can his grace and his justice, his just justice, how can these two things ever be brought together? Only if he's true to his word. Only if he keeps his promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. Only if he keeps his promise here in Exodus chapter 24. Why is God so shockingly gracious to them? Because they're covered by the blood of the covenant. They're covered by the blood of a sacrifice. How is it that these two things can come together? How is it that sinful man can enter the presence of a holy God? How can God be so infinitely gracious and simultaneously just only if he remains true to his word, true to his promise, that even in our unfaithfulness he will pour out his own blood? Only if he satisfies his own just wrath on his sacrifice only if he pours out his wrath not on them but himself and this is exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter 3 verse 23 to 26 for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God by implication therefore all deserve the punishment the wages of sin which is death and are justified by his grace, are made right before God by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Big word, propitiation means he put forward his own sacrifice and poured out his wrath on his own sacrifice. And who is his own sacrifice? His son, He poured out and satisfied his wrath in Jesus to be received by faith. That sacrifice must be clung to by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show he did this, this propitiation, this work of putting forward his own sacrifice and pouring out and satisfying his own wrath in himself. He did this to show his righteousness so that he might be just and justifier. So that he might be just, his justice might be poured out and he might be justifier, the one that it graciously makes sinful man clean and right before a holy God of the one who has faith in Jesus. How is it? It's only in Jesus. His justice and his grace meet in Jesus. And the only way that any sinful person can ever enter into the holy presence of God is through the blood of Jesus. He is the one that we must cling to. As we point forward, as we move forward to the New Testament, on our way there we read in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 11, that it's through the blood of the covenant that prisoners are set free. It's through the blood of the covenant. The language here for Moses, the blood of the covenant, that prisoners are set free. In Jeremiah chapter 31, 31 to 33, that God promises to, to, to write a new covenant 
Not a covenant that's followed externally, but one that's written on the hearts of man. In Jeremiah 31, he says, I'm making a new covenant, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. My covenant that they broke though I was their husband. For this is the covenant that I will make. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And what does Jesus say in Luke chapter 22 verse 20 as he's breaking the bread and he's pouring the wine He lifts up the cup and he says, this is the blood of the new covenant. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. What is Jesus saying? My blood is the new covenant. My blood is the one that sets prisoners free. My blood is the one that that moves you from external performance to internal transformation. My blood is the only means by which you may be reconciled to a holy God. Jesus and his blood shed is our only hope. What's your confidence this morning? What sacrifice are you pointing to this morning for why a holy God should welcome you in? Are are you pointing the sacrifice of bulls and goats? Of course not, Neil. I'm not pointing to bulls and goats. Okay. Are you pointing the sacrifice of a good moral performance, a good moral life, being better than the next girl, the next guy? Are you pointing to your how much time you spend reading the Bible? Are you pointing to how often you come to church? Are you pointing to how much you give, how much you go? Are you pointing to some external measure? Or are you pointing to Jesus? He and he alone is how I'm reconciled to God. He and he alone is the means by which I'm reconciled to a holy God. That leads us to our third point, the result. The result He invites them up. He invites them in the means by which they can have a relationship with God and God dwell in their their midst. Chapter 25 to 40, the, the only means by which is through the shed blood of a sacrifice. And what's the result? What's the result in the text? It's beautiful. It's extraordinary. In verses 8 in verses 9 down to 11, Then Moses and Aaron, the priests, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 of the elders of Israel went up. They went up. And what do they get? They get a glimpse of the presence of God. In verse 10, it says, And they saw the God of Israel. Now at first glance, we might be tempted. They saw God? They saw his presence. Nowhere is God defined in this. Nowhere is he described in this. It doesn't say they saw his face. They saw his presence. We know from later in Exodus, we know in the New Testament and 1 John, no one can see the face of God and live. No, No man can see the face of God and live. So they're not getting his face. They're getting a glimpse and a glimmer of his presence. In fact, what, what's, what is described is not God in his face, but what's described is the ground on which he stands. And it's described so, it's so, so mesmerizing and so astonishing and shockingly beautiful. The ground on which he stands. Verse 10, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone. 
like the very heaven for clearness. The Hebrew is really clunky here, just like the English is translated very clunky. What The heaven for clearness, what on earth? It's the most beautiful and shocking thing. They can't even fully describe what they're staring at, but what they do describe and what they know they're staring at is the ground on which God stands. So in other words, they are either so in awe of his presence that they're, they're staring at the ground, backing away from his holy presence, or they're prostrate face down on the ground. And what they see is astonishing in beauty. It's like sapphire stone. That is used elsewhere in Ezekiel. It's used elsewhere to describe the, 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 the beauty and the, the precious nature of the, of the presence of God. And what they get is a glimpse, a glimmer. They get the ground. If the ground is so beautiful on which God stands, how much more is his face? What's going on here? As a result of the shed blood of the covenant, they are invited in to his presence and they get a glimpse of his presence. Like Moses in chapter 33 got a glimpse of the backside of God's presence as he's put in the cleft of the rock and God passes by. He's out of the cleft of the rock and he gets a he, I know he was here. They feel his weighty presence, which is exactly what verse 11 describes. They beheld God. That beheld is not the same Hebrew word for saw with their eyes. They beheld, meaning they, they felt the weighty, crushing presence of his presence in their midst. And what did they do? What we all want to go do right now. Ate and drank. They celebrated with a feast. You're going to make it to the ham, I promise. They got a glimpse of the, of the inkling, of the fringes, of the floor on which he stood. And it's so marvelous and, abu- and beautiful and amazing. They're floored by it. Fast forward to the New Testament. How is it that they can stand that they could dwell in his presence and not be consumed. It's only by his gracious invitation. It's only by his gracious provision of a sacrifice of the shed blood of the covenant. Don't you see what this is pointing to? Don't you see who this is pointing to? This is pointing us to Jesus. It's squarely and pointing us to Jesus. He is God's grace on display. He is God's invitation into relationship. He is our true and better and only mediator who by his very blood was shed to make a way for us to gain the full unhindered face of God. Think about the comparison, the contrast. Israel got the floor, the presence But in Jesus, we get all of God, his fullness. Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 19, that in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. Colossians 1, 19. And Paul repeats that in Colossians 2, 9. 
All the fullness of deity dwells bodily in Jesus. And then he says something remarkable. That those who are in Christ, Christ is in them. You have been filled in Jesus. All of the fullness of God is in Jesus. And if you have clung to the sacrifice of Jesus, then all of Jesus is in you. All of God is in Jesus and all of Jesus is in you. You don't get just the floor. You get his fullness. More than that, while they're staring at the shocking glory of the ground on which he stood in Jesus, the Bible says we get God's face. We get his embrace. And we get his smile. I've used this before. I've I've shared this before, this analogy. It comes from John chapter 1, verse 18. What we get in Jesus is crook-of-the-neck access to God. John chapter 1, verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. It literally means God has never been seen except by the one and only God who is at the Father's side. Jesus. And the phrase Father's side, the Greek word there means in his chest. What did Jesus have? He had the Father's chest. Just like my little girls, they have my chest. They have my neck. And what does my youngest do all the time? She lifts her face up and she grabs both sides of my face and she just smiles. And what do I do back? I smile. Jesus has that and had that and through Jesus. John chapter 1 verse 12 All who cling to him, cling to his sacrifice, cling to his life, cling to his blood, are given the right, the privilege to be called the children of God. We get what Jesus has. The chest of God, the face of God, his embrace and his delight. Lastly, Comparison, comparison 24 to, to what we are offered in Jesus. Israel got to feast and enjoy God's weighty presence temporarily. The elders are on the mountain. They're halfway up. They're somewhere on the mountain. They're closer up than they've ever been before. But they're going back down. But what do we get in Jesus? We get a feast for eternity in the presence, in the full presence of God. Revelation 5, 9, and they sang a new song, gathered around the throne. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. That's perpetual. That's eternity. That's eternal in nature. And what do we know from Revelation 19.9? That it's at a feast where we will eat and we will drink. And what is it? A feast of or a feast around the marriage supper of the Lamb who was slain on our behalf. This text forces us to ask a question. Which sort of relationship do you have, do I have with God? Is it one that's from afar? 
If it's, if it, is it one that still has bar- a barrier between us and God? Is it one that still, it, it still has limits? Are we, are you, is your relationship, is my relationship one at a distance from God? Or do you have his embrace? Do you have his face? Do you have his stare, his smile? Do you have his chest? Friends, the only way you can have that, the only the difference between those two types of relationship, the only means is Jesus and his shed blood. Is he your hope this morning? Is he the one you cling to? Is he the one that you will sing about? Is he the one that you will gather around, just like we are gathered this morning, all of us around and sing and celebrate at the marriage supper of the Lamb. This morning we're celebrating his resurrection. We've talked the entire time about his death, but, but we have to understand the only way we know that this is true, the only way we have hope, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, is if he was raised from the dead. If, Paul says, he was not raised from the dead, then you and I will not be raised from the dead. There will be no marriage supper of the Lamb. There will be no surrounding the throne. There will be no celebrating him forever. There is no forgiveness of sins. We all still deserve death. But Paul says he's raised. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, but he has risen. He has been raised from the dead. And because he is victorious over death, we know that he's victorious over sin. And therefore, by his blood, we can be justified and redeemed and reconciled and have peace and access and the full face and the full embrace of God. Is that true of you? Is that your experience this morning? Because you've embraced Jesus. Let's let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. It is so beautiful. I have no, un, I, I do not understand how someone could, could, could look at the Old Testament and say that it's irrelevant. We have studied verses in, in Exodus chapter 24, and we have only scratched the, the surface of, of all of the New Testament pointers. We saw what Moses did. He proclaimed the authority of God. He, he called for the submission of the people. And then he, sh- he shed blood of a sacrifice. We didn't even talk about Mark chapter 1 verse 15 where Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand. What's he announcing? The authority of God is at hand. And what does he proclaim? Repent, submit, yield your will. And then what does he announce? And believe the good news of the gospel. What's the good news of the gospel? Heavenly Father, it is that you provided a substitute in Jesus. That you shed your own blood. That you satisfied your own wrath. And for those reasons, we sing. We celebrate. And we celebrate all the more knowing that Jesus raised from the grave. Raised from the dead. Conquering death. And because he did, we know that he can conquer sin. And because of that hope, we have hope here and now. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. Thank you for the blood. Thank you for your grace. 
and thank you for your victory over the grave. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.